celebrating the Passover meal in Jerusalem with the disciples, and they were looking at some conversations that happened between Jesus and his disciples immediately after that meal. Uh, so let me read uh, verses 24 to 38, Luke chapter 22. Uh, let's hear these words together. A dispute also arose among Jesus' disciples as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. Those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greatest? One who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? That's right. But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I pray for you, that your faith may not fail. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to the Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster won't crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, but now, let the one who has a money bag take it, likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his clothes and buy them. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, there are two swords. And he said to them, It's enough. Have you ever been in charge of a group of people who seem to constantly misunderstand you and regularly head off the path that you were laying out for them? Imagine for a moment, imagine being a coach of a team. Right? Imagine a coach in the locker room. Uh, speaking to his team before the big game, and the first thing he says is, stay focused because this is the most challenging opponent of our entire season. But as he's talking, several of the players start signaling to each other and then uh, verbally disputing about which one of them is the favorite of the cheerleading squad. <laughs> well, coach calms him down, he tries another tactic. Players, in a game like this, you have to be aware of your own vulnerabilities and not let those get the best of you. And then the captain speaks up, hey coach, you don't have to worry about me. I don't have any of those issues. I'll be a rock the whole way through. And the coach thinks, he was one of the ones I was speaking to. <laughs> and finally the coach tries a third tactic. He says, look, this game is going to be a fight. It's going to be the battle of your lives. And they say, yeah, we're going to knock those dudes unconscious and send them to the hospital. And the coach puts his head in his hand and says, will I ever get through to these players? Now, something quite similar is going on in this passage with Jesus and his 
disciples. Jesus has come to Jerusalem to the climax of his earthly journey, to the fulfillment of his mission, and last week we saw how Jesus earnestly desired to have communion with his disciples, to share fellowship with them. They shared this very significant and symbolic uh, Passover meal together, and today they're sort of these conversations are set after the meal and before Jesus and his disciples head out to the Mount of Olives in verse 39. But what we see here is that despite all that Jesus has previously taught his disciples for years, and despite Jesus' earnest desire to share intimacy and fellowship with them, and despite the high-stakes situation that they're about to face, the disciples are still on a completely different way. Ready at any moment to veer off the path that Jesus has set for them. And of course, this isn't just a problem that Jesus' disciples faced back then. As Jesus' disciples today, we can share intimate fellowship with him in one moment, and then in the next moment, we can be ready to be right off the path that he set for us. We can call our Lord, and at the same time, we can be inclined to do and say things that are completely inconsistent with our profession of faith. Maybe you're here and you're not yet a disciple of Jesus. Maybe you're just sort of listening in, as it were, to this conversation between Jesus and his disciples. And I hope that if, if that's you, I hope you'll see something about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. But also, most importantly, something about who Jesus is. The main thing we're going to see this morning is how deeply misguided Jesus' disciples can be. And how unwaveringly steadfast Jesus is. We're going to see three variations on that theme. How deeply misguided Jesus' disciples can be and how unwaveringly steadfast Jesus is. So, first variation on that theme is in verses 24 to 30, where we see disputing disciples and a humble king. Uh, verse 23, Jesus' disciples question one another because Jesus has just said that one of them will betray him, that is, hand him over. And they start questioning which one of them will it be? And then in verse 24, they get into a dispute. Which of them was to be regarded as the greatest? So they're sort of, first they're curious which one of us is the worst, and then they're debating which one of us is the best. Um, they're sort of constantly comparing themselves to one another. And they're not even asking who in reality is the greatest. They're saying who is to be regarded as the greatest, right? They're concerned with appearances, not even with reality. Now notice how Jesus responds to them in verses 25 to 30. Jesus, speaking, Jesus doesn't immediately uh, rebuke them. Uh, he begins by talking about how greatness is normally defined and expressed in the world. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Right. Normally in this world, greatness is defined as exercising power, receiving recognition, and enjoying comfort. Right? Exercising power, exercising lordship, uh, being called benefactors, that word to be translated, uh, the ESV translated, those are in authority are called benefactors. Other translations say they call themselves benefactors, the word can be translated either way. So they both receive and demand recognition or expect recognition. Uh, benefactor was a common title for rulers in the ancient world, and the word means one who bestows benefits. 
Uh, so in the ancient world, leaders often maintained their hold on power by, in part, by publicizing their acts of generosity. So perhaps uh, a, a grand building that they financed or a lavish banquet or other sort of giveaways um, that they advertised with great fanfare. It was sort of part of their strategy to maintain their public image and keep a secure hold on their office to advertise uh, their their public acts of generosity. Um, and then third, in joint comfort, verse 27 says, uh, the one who, who's normally seen as greater is the one who reclines the table, right? Sit back, have a meal brought to you, enjoy that leisure. So that's how greatness is normally defined and expressed. Exercising power, receiving recognition, enjoying comfort, then Jesus says to his disciples, not so with you. Jesus isn't simply warning his disciples to avoid dishonesty or exploitation or other what we think of as abuses of power. He's challenging them to conceive of greatness in an entirely different way. You see, in Jesus' day, social status was largely determined by seniority. The oldest... Uh, would be the most respected, would have the most authority. The youngest person would do all the things that nobody else wanted to do. Just like a servant would be required to do everything that uh, the leader would instruct him to do. But Jesus turns the normal definition of greatness upside down. Let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. One writer put it this way, the disciples are interested in titles. Jesus offers them towels instead. Greatness is not determined by how many serve you, but how you serve others. See, the Gospel of John tells us that on this very evening, at, at the Last Supper, Jesus wrapped a towel around his waist and went around the table and washed his disciples' feet, one by one. That was a task normally reserved for the lowliest servant. The lowest status person in the room. And Jesus willingly, voluntarily did that task himself. Luke doesn't record the foot washing, but here Jesus says, I'm among you as one who serves. That word literally means one who waits on tables. The Greek word is diakonon. It's where the uh, church got the word deacon, which simply means servant. Someone who does the tasks that need to be done, whatever they are. By washing his disciples' feet, Jesus willingly performed the task that was normally assigned to the lowliest servant. And that was only a preview of Jesus' ultimate act of sacrifice. His ultimate act of humble service. Which were leading up to where he would uh, bear our sins in his own body on the cross. So that we could be washed clean where he would take the humiliation and scorn uh, and, and disgrace that the human race had brought upon ourselves. And he would take that upon himself in his death so that we might be honored and restored to right relationship with God. You see, Jesus came to earth to do whatever was necessary to rescue us, regardless of what it would cost him. He had unlimited power and enjoyed unlimited comfort and unlimited recognition in heaven as the Son of God eternally, uh, in eternity past, but he was willing to, those, his primary goal was not to just hold on to all those things. He was willing to set them aside. 
time for the sake of doing whatever was necessary for our good. The Apostle Paul says Jesus humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross. You see, Jesus' implicit message to his disciples here is that if they were really seeking to be great in the way that Jesus defined greatness, they wouldn't be arguing about which one of them was, regard, was to be regarded as the greatest. They'd simply be doing whatever needed to be done for one another's good and for God's glory. Now what about us? Have we wasted our time and energy being competitive and contentious with other followers of Jesus, either out loud or in our own minds? Have we bought into the worldly definition of greatness, exercising power, receiving recognition, enjoying comfort? Have those things become our primary goal? And other things simply become the means to maintaining those things. Now, Jesus was not saying that exercising power or receiving recognition or enjoying comfort are inherently evil things. He wasn't telling his disciples, you must always run away and avoid those things. No, in verse 29 and 30, Jesus promised his disciples would eat with him at his table, a place of honor and joy and great comfort, and that they would reign with him in his kingdom, great authority. In other words, Jesus' disciples... Uh, his apostles would exercise authority and have honored status both in the church in this age as well as in the age to come. So Jesus isn't saying that authority and power and comfort and status are evil things. Right? Some of us gravitate towards position of authority and honor and power because we love those things way too much. And some of us run away from positions of authority and honor because we're afraid to take on the burdens and responsibilities that come with leadership. But Jesus is holding out a better way. He's saying, you, my disciples, you are destined to rule. That was God's plan all along for his image-bearing human creatures. And that's Jesus' plan for his brothers and sisters. But Jesus is also saying, not only that you are destined to rule, but first, you must learn to serve. You're destined to rule, but first you must learn to serve. So that, you can, so that whenever you have ruling or leading responsibility, you can carry that out in a distinctive way for the good of everyone who is under your leadership. The passage we read earlier, the Apostle Peter spoke to leaders in the church in particular. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Right? He says, take up the leadership responsibility that, that God has given you. But then he says, how? Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. You see, that's what servant leadership after the pattern of Jesus looks like. During my senior year of college, uh, one of my mates was another Christian and he had a simple index card taped to above his desk in his room with four words. Not so with you. And most people who saw that probably had no idea what the card meant. And initially I couldn't figure out either. And then I read this, episode, this story. And it clicked. Not so with you. Verse 26. 
You see, my friend had grown up on the campus of a New England prep school, and now he was a dad. He was privileged. He was successful. He had a lot of potential. He had lived a comfortable life, and he knew that. And he was living in a culture that celebrated greatness on the world's terms. Exercising power, receiving recognition, enjoying comfort. But, and, and my friend did not despise the education he had received, or the comforts he enjoyed, or the opportunities that he had. But he knew that Jesus had a better definition of greatness. And he knew that in order to, be, in order to avoid being seduced by the world's definition of greatness, he needed to have Jesus' definition of greatness constantly staring him in the face. And I saw my friend's life being shaped by these words of Jesus. He prioritized spending time with Jesus alone early in the mornings before most students woke up. He was quietly generous with his money, but also with his time. He was a good listener. He would listen sincerely. He would ask uh, thoughtful questions. He had a, a comfy blue chair in his room. And sometimes when I needed to process things with somebody, I would go sit in that chair, and he would listen to me, and we would pray together. He joined the Air Force ROTC even though he had to drive an hour and a half each way to Yukon because, for training because there was no ROTC in New Haven back then. And later on, when he went to medical school, he chose to live in a neighborhood where I was honestly scared to visit him because he was committed to living among and working among the poor as a doctor. See, I saw my friend's life being shaped in concrete ways by the humility and the uh, servant attitude of Jesus. By those words, not so with you. One person put it this way, Jesus' disciples bear many troubles, not theirs. To honor the one who, were, who took a world of trouble. So that's the first contrast we see. Disputing disciples and a humble king. But the second contrast we see in verses 31 to 34 is between an overconfident disciple and his level-headed advocate. Now these verses focus on Simon Peter. If you read through the Gospels, you'll notice that Simon Peter speaks more than any of the other disciples. Uh, he's sort of like the team captain, the first among equals or the spokesperson for the group. And what we see here is that Jesus sees what Peter doesn't. Peter underestimates his own vulnerabilities. But Jesus is fully aware of them. So first, Jesus sees that Peter is vulnerable to Satan's attacks. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you all that he might sift you all like wheat. Now, if you're looking in the Pew Bible, there's a helpful note at the bottom of the page that explains that the, the yous in verse 31 are plural, referring to all the disciples, where the yous in verse 32 are singular, uh, referring to Peter alone. So what Jesus is saying is, not, is Satan is not just targeting Peter only. He's targeting all of the disciples. He's already entered into Judas. It says so earlier in the chapter, Judas has willingly complied with his treacherous plan. But now Satan, but Satan wants to have them all. He wants to sift them like wheat. That is to shake them with the goal of destroying them. That is to throw them up into the air with the hopes that the wind will blow them away like 
chaff. 1 Peter 5, 8 uses similar language. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You see, Satan's intent is always the opposite of Jesus's. When Jesus enters into a person, our humanity is renewed and healed and gloriously transformed and we begin to flourish in ways that perhaps we never have before. When Satan gets a hold of that person, the opposite happens. That person becomes only a shell of their former self, holding on to lies, being ensnared in destructive habits. Their very humanity is gradually eaten away. And Jesus says Peter's vulnerable to Satan's attacks. Now again, what about us? Do we really believe that we are vulnerable to Satan's attacks? Now, I know some of us hear that language and we instinctively hesitate. Why? Because we've heard people abuse that language. Right? We've heard people who interpret every difficulty in their life as a demonic attack. And in doing so, they avoid taking responsibility for their choices and bad habits. They make little progress in resolving interpersonal conflicts because... Anyone who opposes them must be from the devil, right? And they resist medical advice and treatments, and they don't seem to flourish as a result. But if we trust the words of Jesus, we cannot simply ignore the reality of Satan. Even if that concept is sometimes misused. Over and over, Jesus speaks of Satan as a real enemy who intimidates, who accuses, who deceives, who distracts, who discourages Jesus' disciples. None of us are immune to Satan's attacks. Now, sometimes Satan manifests himself in visible, audible, or tangible ways. And many Christians throughout the world have experienced this. Uh, but sometimes Satan just makes temptation seem irresistible and following Jesus seem impossible. The Apostle Paul said, we are not unaware of Satan's schemes. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Part of growing as a disciple of Jesus is recognizing satanic deceptions for what they are. And resisting them with the truth of Christ uh, and with the help of other believers and people who can help us walk but Jesus doesn't just perceive Peter's vulnerable to Satan's attacks. He also perceives that Peter is vulnerable to his own fleshly weakness and to the pressures of the world around him. Verse 33, Peter says, Lord, I'm ready. I'll go with you to prison. I'll even die with you. And Jesus says, Peter, you ain't even going to make it through the night before you chicken out. It's ironic that Jesus chooses the rooster as the signal for Peter. The rooster crowing. Isn't that interesting? The rooster crowing, an image of pride and boasting. Proverbs 30, 31 refers to the strutting rooster. Stately in his stride. Acting like the king of the chicken. Peter is cocky like the rooster. Peter is far too confident in his own ability to withstand pressure and opposition. And we too can underestimate our own fleshly weakness and how vulnerable we are to the pressures of the world around us. 
Proverbs says, pride goes before a fall. Sometimes God permits believers in Christ to fall into serious and shameful sins in order to expose the folly of our arrogant pride and to save us from our misplaced overconfidence in ourselves. He allows us to fall into something that is serious and shameful that maybe we hate in order to actually save us from a greater danger that he perceives. See, Peter's vulnerable to Satan's attacks to his own fleshly weakness to the pressures of the world around him, but thankfully, that's not the only thing we see in this section. Peter is overconfident he's about to miserably fail, but in Jesus he has a level-headed appetite. Now, notice how level-headed Jesus is throughout this entire passage. Both in his assessment of Peter as well as the other disciples. Look back at verse 28 for a minute. Jesus says to his disciples, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. Now, they're just disputing over who's the great. They're just having these silly, they're in the middle of this silly argument, and, and Jesus is rebuking them, but he still affirms the good he can see in them. You stayed with me in my trials. They're still there. They haven't yet run away. They will, but they're still there. You know, we often tend to either idolize or demonize people, right? We tend to either see everything they do in the best possible light, or we've seen enough, and now we see everything they do in the worst possible light. A person is either a model of godliness and virtue, or a den of iniquity and vice. But reality is almost always more complicated, right? The Bible says the world is deeply corrupted by human sin and at the same time mercifully sustained by God's providence. Believers in Jesus are still struggle with indwelling sin and yet we have the indwelling Holy Spirit who is gradually yet powerfully changing us. Right? And Jesus sees the big picture. Jesus sees Peter's pride, Peter's weakness, Peter's vulnerability, all things that Peter is blind to and way too naive about. In fact, that's probably why Jesus calls him Simon. Simon was uh, the name he grew up with. Peter was the name that Jesus gave him. Peter means rock. Jesus basically gave him a name that he would grow into over time. But Jesus is, speaks to him using both names here, sort of recognizing, sort of, uh, both, both sides of his character. Right? Jesus sees Peter's present weakness, but he also sees a hopeful future beyond Peter's imminent failure. I'm afraid for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter is vulnerable in more ways than he recognizes, but Jesus is stronger than all of those things that threaten Peter and Jesus is advocating for him. And the book of Hebrews says that Jesus does not just advocate for Peter or for the twelve apostles, but it says Jesus is able to save completely, that is forever, at all times, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That is, Jesus is praying for us before God the Father in heaven. That is, advocating for us, standing for us, 
pray that our faith may not ultimately fail. And if we are drawn near to God through Him, then we can hold on to that promise. We have a level African-headed attitude. Right? Sometimes we swing back and forth. On the one hand, we become way too overconfident, and on the other hand, we fall into the pit of despair. But Jesus is a level-headed advocate that holds on to us when we swing back and forth between both of those extremes. He sees our present weakness, but he also sees a hopeful future for us. You see, Peter will fall and Peter will fail that very night. And like Jacob in the Old Testament, he will walk with a limp, spiritually speaking, for the rest of his life. But unlike Judas, who will end his life in despair, Peter will turn again by God's grace, and Peter will be restored, and Peter will strengthen his brothers and sisters in the faith. You know, if you read the book of Acts, Acts chapter 12, Peter does go to prison for Jesus' sake. And later on, as seems to be foreshadowed in the Gospel of John, later on, Peter will die a martyr's death. Faithfully bearing witness to Jesus all the way to the end. You see, some of us would look at Peter's failure that night, and we would conclude that he should never do anything important for Jesus for the rest of his life. He's just too much of a failure. But Jesus didn't see things that way. What Satan intended for Peter's destruction, Jesus intended for Peter's purification. One person said Satan can provoke a conflict, but he cannot determine its outcome. And so it is with us. The very temptations and trials that threaten to overwhelm and destroy us can be used by God for his good purposes to humble and refine and equip us. So that's the second contrast we see. Overcom- an overconfident disciple and his level-headed advocate. And finally, the last contrast we see in verses 35 to 38 is a contrast between fighting disciples and a suffering Savior. Verse 35, Jesus reminds his disciples of when he had first sent them out to preach and heal throughout the land of Israel. That's recorded in Luke chapter 9, and also a larger group of disciples are sent out in Luke chapter 10. At that time, they had been generally received hospitably and provided for generously. But now, Jesus says in verse 36, now the situation is going to change. Because Jesus' disciples won't just be traveling throughout uh, sort of their homeland, the land of Israel. They'll soon be going out to the ends of the earth. And where they had previously been received hospitably for the most part, now they will experience increasing hostility. Jesus will be, verse 37 says, numbered with the transgressors, that is, counted among the lawbreakers, rejected and condemned even by the ruling authorities. And therefore, Jesus' disciples also must prepare for a context of increasing opposition and hostility. Now, here's the hard question about these verses. Right? The question many people have asked is, what does Jesus mean by verse 36? Let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. And by his response to verse 38, when the disciples say, here, we've got two swords, and Jesus says, that's enough. Uh, now, the interpretations are all over the place. Okay? 
In the Middle Ages and the Reformation period, some church leaders quoted these verses to justify the use of force, military force, violence, not only by the state, but also by the church, to advance the kingdom of Christ and to persecute opponents of the faith. Today, for very different reasons, some critical scholars argue that Jesus was indicating his support for the Zealot movement, which was a movement that advocated armed uprising against the Roman government. Others, again, for a third set of different reasons, quote verse 36 in support of Christians carrying guns for the purposes of self-defense. Jesus advised it. We should all do it. Uh, but all of these interpretations are far away from Jesus' actual intention in this passage. Jesus was not literally uh, recommending or, or uh, commanding his disciples to carry weapons. Uh, how can we be confident of that? Well, for three reasons. Uh, first, consider what Jesus has already taught. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And for one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Luke 6, 27-29. Now Jesus may be using hyperbole, that is, sort of overstatement for the sake of making a point in those verses. Uh, but his point is clear, at least on a personal level, Jesus' followers are not to respond to violence with more violence. Now we can put to the side for a moment the questions of just war, capital punishment, etc., etc. Those are more complicated. Uh, so, first, Jesus previously taught his disciples um, uh, sort of to, to not repay evil for evil, right, in that way. Second, consider everything else we read in the New Testament. Uh, we never see Jesus' disciples using weapons to attack others or even to defend themselves in the book of Acts or anywhere else in the New Testament. The only sword that Jesus' disciples are commanded to take up is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And the early church understood this. For 300 years, Christianity spread uh, westward into Europe and North Africa, eastward into Persia and India, southward into Egypt and the Sudan and Ethiopia, and northward into Syria and Asia Minor, without using physical violence or military force. Unlike many other religious leaders, Jesus did not establish an empire. And the early church understood that. But most importantly, consider the immediate context right here in this chapter. Look down to verses 49 to 51. When those who were around Jesus, so the Roman soldiers come to arrest Jesus, and when those who were around Jesus saw what was followed, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. He doesn't say, not now, maybe later. He says, no more of this. That's not how you expand my kingdom. He says, no more. And Jesus' statement in verse 38 should be interpreted in, with a similar tone of rebuke. Uh, it is enough. It, is, it does not make sense to interpret that as Jesus saying, two swords are plenty to uh, defend all twelve of you. That would make no sense. That's ludicrous. Right? Two swords would not do anything to defend twelve guys, maybe as being in a bigger group, against a legion of Roman soldiers. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus was saying, that's enough. 
conversation ended. And the same word is used in the Old Testament, in a few Old Testament passages, with a clear tone of rebuke. Uh, Deuteronomy 3.26, the Lord said, Enough from you, do not speak to me of this matter again. Ezekiel 45.9, thus says the Lord God, Enough, O princes of Israel, put away violence and oppression, and execute justice and righteousness. So Jesus was not advising his disciples to carry weapons as they carried, as they preached the gospel. He was indicating that they would face increasing hostility and opposition, and that they needed to be vigilant and resourceful. You see, the problem in this section is that Jesus' disciples want to fight, but Jesus knows he has to suffer. Jesus' disciples think that his kingdom must be established and extended by force, but Jesus knows that his kingdom will only be established and extended through his suffering. You see, it's easy to get distracted by Jesus' comments about the swords in this passage and to miss the most important verse of this entire section, which is verse 37. For I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And that word must appears about ten times in Luke, and it's sort of a key uh, uh, that indicates God's divine purpose and plan that must be fulfilled. When, that, when you see that word in the Gospel of Luke, you're meant to take note, uh, because Luke is meant to, meaning to highlight something important, an important development, that this is God's plan that it happened this way. The scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Now, what is he quoting? Jesus is quoting a prophecy from Isaiah 53. Turn back there for a moment. Page 575 in the Pew Bible. Isaiah 53 is a haunting poem. It's a poem about the suffering servant of God who is completely obedient and yet endures great suffering and ultimately death. So Isaiah 53 speaks of God's servant being despised, verse 3. It's rejected. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. It speaks of him being Oppressed and afflicted, pierced and crushed, and ultimately, verse 8, cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And yet, this obedient servant of God, through his suffering and death, atones for the sin of many people and makes them to be accounted righteous. Verse 12 is the verse that Jesus quotes. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors, or lawbreakers. You know, let me challenge you, if you are not a Christian, take half an hour to read through this chapter, Isaiah 53. It's, it's pretty thick, so it takes some time to chew but it was written hundreds of years before Jesus. And some people have read it and thought, this must have been doctored up by Christians. But you can read a copy of the Dead Sea Scroll, which, is, which has been dated to 200 years before Jesus, and the exact same text. It wasn't doctored up by Christians. It was there all along. Just 
written hundreds of years before Jesus, and yet it describes beautifully and even precisely what happens to Jesus in his crucifixion and even his resurrection and the meaning of it all. The suffering servant of God who atones for the sins of many. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, throughout this entire passage in Luke, we've seen how deeply misguided Jesus' disciples can be. Prone to petty conflicts and selfish ambitions, overconfident and blind to their vulnerabilities, ready to fight but not ready to suffer, constantly misunderstanding Jesus and prone to veer off the path that he had set out for them. If you doubt whether there's a place for you as a disciple of Jesus in the church, be encouraged. There's a place for you too. Um, among all of us who are prone to be deeply misguided. But what we see, even more than that, we see how unwaveringly steadfast Jesus is. The humble king who became a servant. The level-headed advocate who calls out our pride and gives us hope beyond our failure and the atoning sacrifice. The righteous one who is counted with the lawbreakers so that transgressors and deeply misguided disciples like us might be counted among the righteous. Let's pray.